Welcome back. It is uh, one o'clock and uh, we run uh, by the clock here, so even though some of you are still eating, we'll get on with uh, the show. Um, I can tell you about next week. We have Brian Mason, uh, the political leader of the New Democratic Party in Alberta is coming to speak to us. And it's World Water Day, so uh, the provincial uh, election campaign probably won't quite be started, so he's not going to be particularly political, but he will talk about water, which is uh, definitely an issue in Alberta. Now to the question period, uh, I'd like to invite the two excellent speakers to come back to the podium, and uh, hopefully you will have many questions. Uh, please try to frame your questions around their talk, uh, and not necessarily your own opinion. So... Uh, you can address the question to either or one in particular. So uh, I'll be keeping an eye on you. Come on back up, Shannon and Michael. So I guess that means the floor is now open for questions. That guy. My name is Van Christou. Uh, thank you both uh, for enlightening us today on a topic that's really important to us all, attitudes and, and our, our value system. Um, I'll just give you a little preamble about th this mat matter of our becoming so competitive and so uh, cutting the other guy off the knees in order to make ourselves a little taller type of an attitude. Uh, even in our photography club, uh, we developed this system of, of uh, giving a first prize, second prize, and third prize uh, each, at each meeting, which I've been fighting for years as being ridiculous. We finally changed it at the last meeting, I was glad to see. But uh, what, what you discussed about uh, the matter of, of, of any opinion is, is viable and, and must be considered. And it's not as black and white as our, um, our addiction to the scientific process has led us to believe. Um, in, uh, human, in human things, things are not as black and white as that. Uh, thank you very much for pointing that out. And, uh, and thank you for continuing on with your work with uh, other than, uh, than the right-wing parties. Um, we're, we're blessed to have that other opinion around us. Uh, so keep up the good work. No question? Okay. Well, that was a pretty easy one to answer. Are there any other questions? Thank you both. Uh, you two are too clever for me to understand fully what you said. Uh, it's a very good thing I'm retired, and uh, yet uh, people in their 30s and 20s 
can come up with such uh, original ideas. My question to both of you is about consensus model. I went through uh, that model of decision making in Africa and one in collective in Toronto whose name should remain nameless because that organization still exists. And I believed in that approach because I don't like adversarial model. I don't like uh, people demanding instant gratification. However, if you go to the other extreme, consensus model, do you know what the trouble is? Takes hell of a long time. Uh, in Africa, parish council had to meet four days. And the minister has to listen to everybody talk until he or she falls asleep. <laughs> and the uh, minister will be fired if uh, he or she doesn't listen to everybody. And after hearing everybody speaks, then minister can make decisions. And the collective in Toronto is the same thing. It took us such a long time to come to any kind of consensus. There are governments in the north, aren't there? who run the consensus model without any political party. I, could you tell me, Shannon, which government? Yeah, Nunavut and NWT, not Yukon. Okay. Is it realistic to abolish adversarial system and try to run everything on the consensus? Thank you. Uh, in, I've also worked in quite a few consensus organizations over the years. In fact, Women's Space is a consensus-based organization. I find that it works uh, when pretty much everyone around the table shares the same goals or has the same values. It doesn't work when they don't. So, for example, under the guise of um, you know consensus and consultation, uh, our government, in terms of uh, environmental policy has undertaken several different, you know, consultation roundtables that are sort of based on a, an idea that we get the environmentalists and the civil society groups and the, and the corporations all again around the table and we, we arrive at some kind of consensus solution. What ends up happening is that the, they can't agree because they are competing interests and whatever they're tasked with doing often uh, does not serve the interests of civil society or the environmental groups and more likely serves the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers or Alberta Chamber of Resources. Um, so that is a danger with that. Um, I don't know if importing... You can import some of those models uh, of consensus-based decision-making, I think, into our parliamentary system um, with, I think, a reasonable level of, of success... Uh, but you should not be surprised if there are competing interests that they will clash. Um, and yeah, it takes a heck of a long time. I remember going to the protest against the free trade area of the Americas in Quebec City. We were a consensus-based affinity group. There were about 20 of us. It took us about four hours to get breakfast on. It was just so long. Raisins in the oatmeal? Not. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, it was... Um, it can be exhausting, but it's also, what we saw with Occupy Wall Street, it can be 
an and in itself to participate in that kind of process as a sort of an act of re a rehearsal of revolutionary awareness, if you will, for the people who are involved in it to understand that we can build different worlds based on different decision-making models. Michael? I think uh, that's a pretty interesting question. If we had to have a look at one very specific example in which uh, we could make a simple change to our parliamentary system to introduce less adversarial means, I would refer to the idea of uh, progressive parliaments, parliaments where parties work together. Even the opposition is included in the decision-making process. Here in Canada, we have uh, an oppositionary system, which means that the opposition has to sit uh, opposite of what the government is saying. And they're not allowed to stray from that position. Uh, their official role is to act as a check and balance to the government. Uh, in some more progressive Scandinavian nations, this isn't the case. Uh, the opposition is included in all the decision-making processes. Their candidates sit in cabinet, and they also hold ministerial positions. Uh, we don't do this yet in Canada, but it should be fairly simple for us to accept this sort of system. And that would be another interesting way of establishing consensus building within our government, which doesn't exist currently. Hi, Ian McKenna, and I'd uh, like to get back to you. The, uh, uh, the students from the Chinook High School uh, have a huge thing going on about a gentleman <laughs> called Coney. And what I'm wondering is, are you suggesting that what Mr. Coney is doing, which is murdering all the children in his, his place, that that's okay because, uh, you know, uh, other people, uh, you know, might do the same thing or something like that. I mean, that's, that's part of the problem I have is uh, you're sort of saying uh, we've got to go with what this particular person wants. Are you with this? I think that question is phrased in such a way that if I don't agree with you, I seem like an axe murderer. Uh, but basically what I'll say in, 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 the, in relation to the Coney case is that it's not acceptable what he's doing. It's morally reprehensible. Uh, in the context of the argument, though, even if he's what, what he's deciding to do is incorrect, I strongly don't believe that it's our responsibility to be able to tell him that he's wrong. I understand that I may think it's wrong, but I think that it's wrong to tell him that he's wrong. I understand that seems like a very difficult position to defend, but I think it's fairly central to the argument that I presented. Okay. So I suggest you go and uh, visit those students and uh, hear what they're saying. The students at Chinook High School? I'll take that under consideration. Thank you. Douglas Mitchell. <coughs> I, I was rather intrigued by the contrast between the, the political and the pragmatic, which is what I think you are being, although some people are a bit doubtful if they could really understand what you're saying. But anyway, um, firstly, you, Mr. Moore, what, uh, I'd be interested to know, do you have a political affiliation? I don't like to consider myself uh, an affiliate of any party in Canada, uh, but if I had to choose one... Um, I was born and raised. Also, I'm not born. I was raised in Calgary, so I uh, I do fly up the blue flag. I'm sorry. One of the problems we have in this this uh, 
province, unfortunately, that people seem to think of my father voted blue. I'm going to vote blue. I, I must say I'm, I, I'm in the middle of the spectrum and I'm, I'm sympathetic to the NDP point of view. I'm not too sympathetic to the Conservatives, but I think if you're going to be pragmatic, the question of where are we going is one that has to be addressed. And I think that the trouble with the politicians, it's all short-term. I read an article in the Globe this morning by Margaret Wenty, who, as you probably know, is a conservative who came from the National Post, was taken on by the Liberal Globe and Mail, and she just completely ignores things like global warming, boosting the, you know, the fossil fuel picture. And I wonder, maybe, maybe Shannon, you would like to address that, particularly the fracking situation, which is becoming more and more prominent. Uh, certainly in the States and also here now we hear there's going to be big subsidies from our dollars to uh, support fracking within the province. May I just throw in one quick introduction? Sorry, my, my, my father votes NDP, just, just FYI. Oh, good, I'm glad he um, yeah, well, I'll, I'll take that up. I mean, uh, the reason why I framed my TED Talk this morning in, in, in terms of our values was because I am of the opinion that most of us share social democratic values, uh, regardless of party affiliation, that when you actually drill down into what people, what our shared understandings are of what it is to be Canadian, those are largely social democratic values. Sort of, and, and that's why I did not talk about party affiliation in... Uh, in that speech. I don't, however, engage in moral relativism. I do think that there are things that are objectively problematic <laughs> in our objective reality. Uh, when I was a grad student, I did a lot of thinking and working on postmodern theory and, and, uh, and um, sort of, I guess, uh, a post-structuralist view of the economy and so on. And then when I went and worked in politics, I realized that um, the people who go without don't understand moral relativism. Putting food on the table is not a maybe or an, an idea, or a subjective uh, thing to think about in the stratosphere. It is a real reality that faces people every day. And the number of people who struggle to do it is increasing for objectively obvious reasons having to do with the economy. So that's where I'm at on that. As for the long term, that's why I brought up the, uh, this, this notion of climate change in terms of where we're going. Right? As social Democrats, we've always talked about you know, the social. Right? What are we going to do with the people? Um, now we have to grapple with how the economy also deals with the environment. And, that, and we have to weave that into our social analysis. If we don't, we are simply not reflecting the world we live in. Um, and so as to fracking, yes, of course we're going the wrong way on it. Uh, of course there needs to be a moratorium before, uh, until it is proved uh, to be uh, a scientifically sound procedure. Um, we should not be surprised if we do not place that moratorium if we have increasing problems with groundwater quality and so on, given the body of scientific evidence out there currently. Um, and so, of course, we have to take the long view. I would argue that um, politicians of all stripes do not, generally, but I think that what you're starting to see within what's broadly termed the social democratic left is 
uh, a move towards weaving in the green into into the analysis. And that's why, for example, the Alberta Federation of Labor uh, has put out uh, several detailed reports on a transition to a green economy, for example. Michael, do you have a Michael, do you have an opinion on that? Michael? None that's safe to share in this room. <laughs> uh, Terry Shellington, thank you, uh, both of you, for uh, very stimulating presentations. <clears throat> Michael, your, your uh, response to the Coney question intrigued me, and it, it um, uh, connected with uh, uh, something I thought I heard in your remarks, and I'd like to phrase it and hear you uh, respond to it. But I... I heard in your uh, remarks a bit of the postmodern philosophy, you know, that there's no truth with a capital T. There's just different kinds of truths, and, uh, and we need to live with them all. Um, and I like the consensus model, and I've worked with it in many ways. However, I, I believe out of my faith stance that there is, uh, there is uh, right and wrong, and there's time for conflict and time for saying, uh, no, that's not right. And um, I wonder... Uh, Am I hearing you right that there is no absolute truth in, in, in the way you approach things, but just all kinds of different valid perceptions, including Coney's? Or, uh, help me with this. All right. Well, you're absolutely correct on the postmodern section of that. Uh, you know, uh, among my friends back in Calgary, I sometimes get the nickname POMO, uh, just because it's hilarious for me at least. Uh, but the main reason, the main thing that I think you're asking here is whether or not it's correct to take a stance on any of these things. And I think that's like a little, I hate to say it, I think it's a little bit outdated. My family, the background that I have, especially in regards to religion, um, my father is Irish, Protestant, my mother is Taiwanese Buddhist. And uh, so it's kind of led me to kind of a hands-off approach as far as religion is concerned. Uh, if you're going to be taking any any stance on something, the first thing that I would always consider is whether or not in taking a stance on a particular position and telling someone else that they are definitively wrong, I, I think the first thing you have to consider is whether or not you, sh you are in the position to be able to, to, to make that judgment. Because if you think that you're in the position to make that judgment, then they will also be, in, in, ret in, in, respect, in, in retrospect, able to make the same decisions about how you make your decisions. So I think it should be basically hands-off. And although there may be some terrible things occur... It, it's not ever correct to tell someone else that they're wrong that is basically what, what my stance is. Could I have a supplementary? <laughs> One more. Well, uh, isn't there a place in the middle? Uh, um, and don't we need to live in the middle? And uh, part of that middle ground is to be able to say definitively, here is where I stand. I can live with you and your different perspective, but in my experience there is truth, and here's what I understand it to be, and then we can boldly have a, uh, a testing of those uh, perspectives, but if I'm too polite, uh, I've been in discussions where people were so polite they were afraid to say, hey, I'm here and I'm not over there. And um, I'm wondering if there's a place in your perspective for, for clear personal statements that apply to me personally and in, in my house, for want of a better term. I think there is absolutely a space for, for a clear personal uh, understanding of circumstance, but I, I feel like it's uh, personal decisions that people make, and, and I really am very much against the public voicing of this sort of thing, especially if, and if it's in a situation where it's adversarial, where you're stating your opinion in opposition to someone else's, because I think that that's the sort of uh, 
that's a sort of mindset that led to the outbreak of colonialism, its imperialism, its capitalism. It's the idea that someone else needs to understand your ideas are better than theirs and your idea is objectively superior than theirs. And I don't think it's possible to say that it, anything is really objectively superior to anything else, no matter how re morally reprehensible we may consider it to be. Uh, my name is my name is Frank Tiles. May, may I just address that I'm one? Sorry, because that one that one was a was a good one. I'm not finished yet. Sorry. Go ahead, Frank. I'll just go really quickly. Okay. I think that you probably shouldn't be murdering anyone else. But again, I also don't think you should be telling someone else they shouldn't murder someone. They might have a good reason. You done? Yeah. Sorry. You done? Yeah, Frank. Go ahead. My name is Frank Toth. Uh, without. Offense to you both. Uh, Carnegie always said, when you're speaking, first of all, you have to read your audience. We're 60 and above here. The perception, the absorption of a talk is literally nil if you don't speak succinctly and slowly to a crowd you're trying to sell with your ideas. No offense, please, no offense, okay? Uh, I think I think the value of six words are better than 66 if you understand what you just said in terms of your position of knowledge versus your crowd, okay? But honestly, I apologize, no offense. I, I, I'd like to get to a question that's uppermost in everybody's mind right now your children, their children, and their children, and their future. We have a dictatorship of, of a scope we've never seen in Canadian history. And if you read enough and researched enough, you, you won't debate that point. We're losing everything, 14,000 businesses, uh, corporations sold, nil willy tech, controls every bit of coal and steel in the country, and they say, we want this investment Canada. What is your stand to, for the benefit of your children, for the future of Canada? You know, it doesn't matter what political party you speak of. What, what is our future? What, where, are we, where are we going? How can we change it? We filled the Senate. We plugged it. We can do anything we want with a 24% majority of voters. Where are we going? It'd be interesting for you, well-educated people. Uh, young fellow, I think you're going to be a lawyer. You're an automatic lawyer. Bless you. Uh, no, my grades are terrible, so. <laughs> Sorry, do you want to address that one? Yeah, sure. Um, you talked a little bit about foreign ownership and uh, and those kinds of issues and there's many, many things that we can say on that topic. Broadly speaking, uh, Canada needs leadership in terms of an industrial policy for this country. We have not had one, a coherent industrial policy for quite some time. That means, uh, for starters, uh, it means tightening up our foreign investment rules. It means um, having domestic manufacturing requirements uh, for investments. It means things like a value-added strategy for the country so that we get 
the maximum returns on our bitumen resources in particular. It also means uh, making sure that we build the manufacturing economy in uh, Ontario and Quebec and elsewhere. How that works is that we need to constrain the inflation of the petrodollar, which is what we have in this country right now, that has brought on something of what economists call Dutch disease, right? Because it has essentially gutted our manufacturing base in the rest of the country. How that works is we must, must pace development in the oil sands. This is not to say that we need to stop development in the oil sands. It means we must pace it appropriately and get our appropriate value from those resources. That, is, that must form part of a Canadian industrial strategy. Because now we are at a position where the vast majority of our Canadian economy given as it is to dependence on a commodity dollar, the vast majority of our economy rests on the fortune of the oil sands. And so we must, must, as a country, not just as a province, harness that wealth and put it to work for the good of us all. Michael? First of all, I'd like to apologize for speaking so quickly. That was one part that I re definitely regret. Uh, I should have considered that whenever I was speaking. Uh, the second thing is we're discussing Canada's economic future. Uh, I feel like Canada's economic prospects under the Harper government have been better than they ever have been. Uh, maybe I'm the only person in this room who feels that way. Um, start looking around, I, I'm actually fairly confident that's the case. Um, yeah, it's kind of a tough crowd. Um, <clears throat> uh, we're discussing the effect of the increased value of the Canadian dollar in relation to the manufacturing sector in Ontario. Uh, it's true. The strong dollar has strongly affected our ability to export at a competitive price. But on the same note, uh, if we're discussing things such as equalization payment, health transfers, Alberta is essentially subsidizing the rest of Canada as it stands right now. In the last year, which I can remember statistics, 2007, Canada, uh, specifically Alberta, contributed $19.6 billion more to the federal coffers than they received back in transfer payments, which is a fairly substantial amount. In fact, they're the only net contributor. Uh, that $19.6 billion... Uh, I believe 13.6 ended up in Quebec. And uh, for those of you who have been keeping up with contemporary events, there is an interesting uh, set of protests going on right now in Quebec where students are protesting a hike in their tuition. Uh, the increase in their tuition would end up having them pay close to two and $3,000 a year for their tuition, and they're violently protesting over this here in Alberta. Uh, I, I know personally that my tuition is closer to five and a half, six thousand dollars per year, and I would love to have three thousand dollar a year tuition. But uh, unfortunately, the tax dollars that are raised from oil revenue are used to subsidize them in Quebec. So, I, yeah, again, this isn't really going to go down well with anyone here. So I'm just going to. Sorry. My name is Judy Shepard, and this is for Michael. Uh, Michael, in listening to your talk, um, it seemed completely rational to me. I was in agreement with pretty much everything you said. Um, in listening to the follow-up questions and your responses, seems to me there was a lot more perceived in that talk and even 
intended by you than what I was perceiving. So um, I'm just seeing contradictions here because you're saying that we ha we should not be telling anybody else that what they think or do is wrong, and yet in other remarks you've made, you obviously have strong positions on many things where you are basically telling other people that I think I'm right and you're wrong. Um, if you are not an anarchist and believe that we have to have some system of government, merely by the fact of having a system of government, uh, we are going to have to set laws and rules and um, have some method uh, to run the country under certain rules. So that automatically means telling some people they're wrong. So could you elaborate on that? Uh, I guess rule of law is pretty good. Um, I think it's also important to examine the context within which the speech was presented and written. Uh, it was the University of Lethbridge Student Speaker Challenge, and my main interest was in advancing as far as I could in the competition. So I wrote a fairly, uh, a fairly, uh, what's the best way to put this, inoffensive speech, which allows people to read into it as best as they wish. And I guess some people feel very strongly about some of the positions that are taken in it, but I mean, if... if if you, have, if you have the full text of the speech, it's actually not saying an awful lot. It just allows people to read into it whatever they'd like to hear, uh, which is kind of a, a dirty way of doing it. But uh, I did get to the, to the final round, so I mean, I think it was definitely the right strategy at the time. Uh, that's one quick question, and that's it. Hi, Michael. Considering your, your, your final answer here, do you have political ambitions? Man, I, I, you know what? I don't know. I don't think anyone would vote for me. I'm a pretty offensive person most of the time. So, yeah, I guess if, if anyone would vote for me, I, I guess. But, I mean, I, like I said, I, you know, I'm a pretty opinionated person. Uh, I'm, I might be able to do it, but I think public office is, like, a pretty serious responsibility. I'm not sure I'm good for that. Uh, is it okay if I ask a really quick question from, of, of both of them? Our democracy is uh, not functioning very well these days. Can you give us a quick answer on how to fix that? Do you want to step up to that one first, or do you want me to go? Oh, okay. <laughs> I don't know what to do with that. <laughs> Knud, by the way, is the only person I know who can ask a question about, you know, the impending doom of the end of the world with a smile on his face, you know. Um, uh, okay, democracy in Canada, we have a few issues, one of the, which is the first-past-the-post system. So we need to be very uh, careful and clear about who we are potentially electing as our leader of the official opposition because we want someone who is going to work on that particular uh, problem of uh, wasted votes. Um, so that's the direct ballot box question. My own view is that um, we need an economy that serves people, not the other way around. Um, and that speaks to empowerment and democracy and whether or not people uh, feel like they are included in our social fabric and in this project we call Canada. Um, and so that is part of it. Um, heeding, you know, Jack's last words of let us be hopeful, loving, and optimistic instead of angry and fearful, um, because that is at the root, I think, some of the rot 
of, of uh, our democratic um, crisis, I guess, is uh, uh, this kind of oppositional thinking and, and continual, um, I think, gutting of what it means to be Canadian. And no wonder that so many people, particularly people of my generation and younger, are exempting themselves from that project. Uh, I got a couple things. First is, it, thank you very much for not booing me out of here. I'm, I'm very happy about that. This is an excellent result. Uh, second, as to the political ambitions question, I actually just had a second thought. I know I'm offensive, but I'm less offensive than Rob Anders, so maybe I could take over his position, right? So maybe I still have a bright future ahead of me in that particular regard. No, I know. I, I know he. I know he sets a pretty low bar, but I mean, like, you know, if, if the bar is here, like, I'm just above it, so it's all good. Um, you know, as to the question of what I what what I think is the main problem wrong with democracy right now, uh, is actually even in in this particular uh, the the introduction I said, and it's a very simple statement, and it's uh, truth is not a matter of consensus. Uh, I think that's something a lot of people don't consider. Uh, you know. Uh, when you make decisions based on consensus, when you make decisions based using democratic means, sometimes people aren't making their decisions using objective means of evaluation. I know this runs contradictory to the speech, but this is just bear with me here for a second. Um, in writing uh, a lot of papers that I do in the course of my studies of political science, one of the main things that I note is that voter trends aren't normally driven by people sitting down and objectively weighing the benefits and and, and the consequences of each of their individual decisions. They make votes because this is how their, their father votes, or they make decisions based on how their friends vote, or they make decisions based on how people who wear the same color of badges with them whenever there's voting time going around vote. A lot of times people make decisions when they vote that aren't objective evaluations, and that really affects the ability of democracy to provide us with the correct answer. Because... A lot of times, as I discussed in the speech, we're strictly polarized to select one outcome over another uh, in an adversarial system. And what this means is sometimes we have qu questions which really ha should have a nuanced answer, really get split into yes or no answers based on political affiliation. And that's a serious problem because it means that oftentimes when there's a simple solution which would require some people to make some compromise in some ways, it's just not possible to do it because we have this adversarial party system. So I think that's the main thing that's wrong with democracy right now is that truth is not a matter of consensus and people don't always vote using their heads. Sometimes they vote using other means. Thank you very much. And we'll see you next week at noon.